You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Sarah Welch Larson, and with me today in the studio is not Kevin McClenathan, but Abby Olchesi, who is a columnist at Sojourners Magazine, a freelance contributor to Think Christian, and the film editor at The Pitch in Kansas City. Abby, welcome to Seeing and Believing. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Delighted to have you here with us. Coming up in this episode, we're going to be talking about George Miller's follow-up to Mad Max Fury Road, 3,000 Years of Longing. And then later in the show, we're going to be taking a look at another Australian filmmaker's work for our watch list segment, Peter Weir's 1977 movie, The Last Wave. That's all coming up on episode 347 of Seeing and Believing. My name is Alethea. My story is true. I am a solitary creature by nature. I have no children, no siblings, no parents. I did once have a husband. If there is fate, who can say? But in the Grand Bazaar of Istanbul, I chose a memento. I like it. Whatever it is, I'm sure it has an interesting story. So, what would you wish for? What is your heart's desire? I do have a question. What does one do with three wishes? You'll see. Yes, listeners, we are here on episode 347 of Seeing and Believing, and today we are going to be discussing the movie 3,000 Years of Longing. So, um, while attending a conference in Istanbul, Dr. Alethea Binney, played by Tilda Swinton, encounters a djinn who offers her three wishes in exchange for his freedom. And the djinn is played by none other than Idris Elba. This presents two problems. First, Alethea doubts that the djinn is real. And second, Alethea is a scholar of story and mythology, so she knows all of the cautionary tales of wishes gone wrong. The djinn pleads his case by telling her fantastical stories of his past, and eventually she's beguiled by him and makes a wish that surprises them both. So, Abby, it hasn't been 3,000 years, but it has been the better part of a decade since George Miller's last movie, The Great Mad Max Fury Road, which I'm assuming is a movie that you probably like. So it's has a perfect it been... film, yes. Oh, yeah, it is, it is a perfect movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it is definitely a tall order to follow up Mad Max Fury Road with any movie, but has it been a long wait for you? Uh, waiting for that follow-up from Mad Max, and did this movie meet any outsized expectations that you may have had? Mm, that's a good question. Um, yeah, it it has felt like well, it hasn't felt like three thousand years, but it's been a long time, um, <laughs> obviously, since uh, Fury Road came out, and um, we've had an entire uh, blank check miniseries between <laughs> yeah. then about all of his movies, which was delightful and only served to remind me that uh, his filmography is not that long, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, I mean, in general, I think kind of a sad thing because I like George Miller as a filmmaker a lot, usually. Um, so I was quite excited to see that this was coming out um, and to see how uh, kind of visually ambitious it looked. Um, it looks like it includes a lot of um, similar color and visual stylizing and just like packing the frame with so much stuff, which is usually a thing that I love in, in movies. I really like fabulism. I'm a huge Terry Gilliam fan. Mm. Um, and to, oh, so, so to kind of see that mixed with um, the sort of oddball sensibility that I know George Miller tends to have, I was, I was really excited about it. Um, unfortunately, I feel like the movie, well, it looks great um, and has mm. a lot of, I think, aesthetic things to recommend it. Um, I think it falls short in a couple of ways, um, mm. some of which we'll probably get into. Um, my main problems with it, I think, stem from the fact that the relationship between uh, Tilda Swinton's character, Alethea, and uh, the Jin are... It, it's not as well developed as the stories that the djinn tells her about his own life. Um, mm. And so the stories where Idris Elba is is talking and telling stories about how he came to be in the bottle that she now possesses. Um, and in general, I think themes about storytelling 
that kind of run throughout the film are really interesting and full of potential. And I feel like none of them quite really get exercised to the full power that they could have. Um, mm. This is also a movie that is, um, it's not very long. It's about like an hour and 40, uh, yeah, hour and 45 minutes all told. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it could stand to be longer. It's, it's, it feels like it's kind of rushing along a lot of the, uh, a lot of the third act, which feels a little bit undercooked. And I feel like I, I I would have willingly stuck around for a little bit longer if it meant that those parts got developed a little bit more and we got to see more of them, these two characters together kind of interacting in a modern context, which again, has a lot of potential that it doesn't quite meet. Yeah, that was one of the things that I had problems with as well, was just the way that this movie is structured is almost like a... a a bottle episode more or less of a TV show where everything happens all in one place. Although the fun part about this movie is that it also skips back in time towards the rest of the Jin's history and how he came to be. So you do get a lot of fantastical elements that are outside of the hotel room where these two characters meet. But every time the story starts to get really, truly interesting, you end up cutting back to that same hotel room and these two characters sitting side by side on a bed wearing white bathrobes and just kind of looking at each other in a very white and blank hotel space. And I suspect that that is on purpose because then you get a little bit more of the contrast between these two characters and specifically these two actors who have very different acting styles. But Mm -hmm. it felt a little bit enclosed to me, even as the Jin's story felt like it was trying to open up that world a little bit more. And then I'm I'm definitely feeling you as well on the structure of the story because the third act really does feel quite rushed. You spend so much time getting to know the djinn and you get so much time getting to know Alethea sort of independently of each other and then as they start to bump up against each other. But you don't really get to understand these two characters as they exist in the same space other than those moments where they're talking to each other about, well, this is what I believe about how the world works, or this is how I came to be. And I just, I found that it's not even friction, really. It just sort of feels like the two characters are almost slipping off each other in a couple of ways. And I kind of wish that there had been a little bit more of that friction or tension of these two people are very deeply different and they're getting to know each other and maybe some additional conflict between the two of them probably wouldn't have been a bad thing. I don't, I don't know if that was the sense that you got though. Yeah. I think that's, that's pretty close. Um, Dana Stevens actually wrote a really good review of this movie on slate that more or less encapsulates everything that I felt about it in a, (laughs) I think a a, a much more articulate way (laughs) I've been able to kind of uh, state so far. But um, yeah, I think that there's, there's a lot of potential for dialogue and debate. Um, Mm -hmm that doesn't really happen um, in this movie. And there's a lot of, uh, and I think, and it's not just confined to um, the conversations between uh, Alethea and the djinn, um, but it also follows them like when they go back to her home in London. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this interaction that she has with these two old biddies who live next door to her, <laughs> who are um, just like spouting all this nationalist rhetoric. and. Uh, as soon as that happened, it it kind of dawned on me that in that moment, it feels like George Miller is trying to make a point about the the idea of adopting certain narratives as your worldview, which is a thing that happens all the time. Um, I mean, it has happened all the time for years, but it seems like a thing that we're talking about a lot mm-hmm. recently in terms of um, what we consider to be the truth, <laughs> um, the stories that we take in and the stories that we choose to believe and the stories that we make our lives out of, some of which can be quite harmful to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that thread kind of gets resolved in a cute way, but it's never really stated as to like what the point of that is. It's sort of subtle and it's kind of there, but I think there's, again, a lot of potential for kind of folding that into what we've been discussing in terms of um, storytelling and worldview and desire and how all of that kind of gets conflated into the things that we tell ourselves are true about our lives and the things that we accept or choose not to accept. Um, And yeah, and that, yeah, it was, I, I found that kind of disappointing that we weren't really able to kind of, fully discuss those sort of more philosophical points of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But there, I mean, there is a lot to be said for the, like the first or maybe middle 
a third of the movie where, where <laughs> Idris Elba is telling most of these stories in that they're just like really beautifully designed and really interesting, fully developed worlds that it's kind of lovely to spend time in. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, there's a lot to look at and a lot to think about and um, a lot of interesting turns on the kind of monkey's paw of it all mm -hmm. <laughs> um, where like the, uh, the kind of common understanding that we have of that is like, don't wish for the thing because you'll get it. But in a sense that you, you, you didn't want, you didn't want what it cost to get it. Um, mm -hmm. But the way that he frames it is interesting in that it's not necessarily the cost isn't necessarily the issue. It's it's always human based. It's not like a cosmic thing where the universe is going to give you some screwed up version of the thing you thought you wanted. Hmm. The consequence is always is always based in some kind of human fallibility, which I think is really interesting and worth discussing as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a lovely insight because I hadn't really I hadn't really thought about it that way at all. Um, part of me wonders if the script for the movie does get at that sense of what we believe to be right and then the the different worldviews that people adopt that can be more or less harmful or more or less truthful. And part of me wonders if that was present in the script and then just couldn't get around necessarily the maximalism of George Miller's production design, which I agree with you is absolutely fantastic. But I do think that that thread was probably intended to be there on a certain level because Aletheia's name is Greek for truthful. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's literally what her name means. And so I suspect that this movie is an attempt to try to get at the ways that we find truth or encounter truth or beauty or like whatever is like actually true and noble and good in the world. And then how it's very difficult to express that in ways that don't seem particularly fantastical. Mm. Um, so she, she even starts off the movie by saying that everything that happened here is true. This is a real story, but because nobody else is going to accept it, then I have to tell it like a fairy tale. And I appreciate that willingness to go there and say, well, nobody's going to believe me if I tell you, tell it to you straight. But at the same time, it kind of feels like the story is almost hamstrung by its desire to go out and be maximal and kind of exaggerate the truth in an attempt to get at the truth. Hmm. And so I think that almost more than anything else is my friction with the film, besides a couple of things that we'll probably get into um, in a little bit here. And then also just um, I had a really difficult time believing the relationship between the djinn and Alethea. And I'm mm. not entirely sure. Like, I have a hard time putting my finger on it. And I think that it's because both performers who are very good and are very good in these roles have very different acting styles. Tilda Swinton feels extremely cerebral and Idris Elba feels very warm and, and almost, I think, nurturing, especially in this particular role. And for whatever reason, kind of like the, the tension between these two characters and their different approaches toward the world, I kind of felt that sliding off each other instead of having some sort of a friction where they could really bounce off each other and have real, real chemistry or real sparks. Yeah, I, I would agree um, to the point where I think when Althea does make her surprising wish, which mm -hmm. is kind of a thing that binds them together for the rest of the movie, um, it surprised me. <laughs> Even though I kind of had a sense that like this is sort of what the movie is advertised is probably going to be coming. Um, but yeah, it surprised me for her and for him and for her character as well, in that mm -hmm. it just it kind of seems like it comes out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that, I think, may be due to the kind of the difference between those two characters. But also, I think it's a it's a problem of development and a little bit of a problem of the script and that they haven't spent that much time together and they haven't really had a whole lot of time to really bounce off of each other. And perhaps if they had that conflict might be a little bit more interesting than it becomes. Um, and instead it just kind of doesn't really have a lot of form. And then we're just sort of told that we have to believe that this was a thing that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, it feels like a lot of their character interactions are the djinn telling Alethea there's something here that's true or I, you must, you know, you must accept these wishes from me. You have to make a wish because otherwise I'm going to be stuck in a terrible plight. 
and her just kind of saying no. It's part of the uh, time-honored comedy tradition of improv where instead of saying, no, I can't do this thing, you say like, yes, I can. And here's another way to make it more interesting and strange. And maybe it's because so much of the tension is him saying, here's a wish that I'm offering you. You need to wish for your uttermost heart's desire. You can't just say, I'm, I wish for tea and then drink that tea. You have to go on and, and wish for something that you cannot attain any other way. And she keeps saying no, and it feels like it kind of knocks the legs out from underneath the tension a little bit, because instead of the story being willing to play along and go in some surprising directions, so much of the conflict is married to this idea of, one person is willing and the other person is unwilling. And then the moment that mm-hmm. that dynamic changes, it does feel like it's coming out of left field. And I, I'm not sure that it's because we haven't spent enough time with Alethea because we've spent quite a bit of the movie in her head. But I think that the movie has a difficult time communicating how she feels about the world because she herself says that she doesn't really know how to relate to the world. She only really knows it through stories. And so... It may not even necessarily be a script problem. I think it may just be a character problem potential. I yeah, I think you may be you may be onto something there. I I feel like a thing that is I think a thing that she states throughout the movie is that she is happy with her life, that she is independent mm-hmm. and um not bothered by the fact that she's unmarried and doesn't have children and that this is her that her work is a, such a large part of her life, which uh, as a single woman <laughs> who is childless and spends a lot of time doing freelance work. I related to a little more than I would like to, <laughs> um, but it is, I mean, I, I think that there, there's an interesting thread there to be pulled on um, the kind of difference between being content with what you have and having, having some kind of heart's desire towards something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that concept of having a heart's desire, having like this deep felt need of a thing that you want that may have consequences if you were to wish for it too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like you don't get the sense that she has that, which seems weird and also makes her a little bit less interesting as a character, if I'm being honest, because everybody has that. Even people who believe that they are fully content with their lives, there is something like some kind of seed of yearning at the base of you. And to have a character for whom that simply does not exist doesn't seem real to me. <laughs> um, and it also, when that's stated over and over and over again, and then suddenly she does have some kind of desire that she states, it's a really surprising one, given everything that she's told us so far. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really seem as if she, given, which is funny, given how much of the time we've spent in her head, it it doesn't seem like she is fully maybe considered as a character mm-hmm. there's there's a lot there left to explore that would be helpful if it were explored and it isn't i suspect the movie is trying to excavate that innermost desire from her um and so i don't know like again it feels like a problem with characterization but i i do think that that conflict of i think that i'm content and then still having something inside that you you do deeply desire or want or yearn for. I do think that that's interesting. I just don't think that the movie quite gets at that. And maybe it's that her character has that awakened in her by the Jin's stories, which again, absolutely gorgeous, beautifully um be- beautifully realized especially in the set design and the costume design. I love the colors in this movie, especially as we get deeper and deeper into the Jin's story. Um there's a lot of very lovely golds and browns and reds that just sort of pop off the screen and then every once in a while something will be punctuated with like this bright purple powder that sort of explodes and then at one point I even saw like a teal that almost looked like a nebula Mm -hmm. and that's the sort of thing that I really would have loved to see a little bit more of instead of bouncing back and forth between the hotel and the gin stories maybe having that be a little bit more cohesive might have made the idea of Alethea just sort of coming to understand that there is something that she wants and she's been denying it to herself and she's been denying that it even exists. Um, that might've made that a little bit more interesting potentially. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So was there anything, I mean, we've, we've sort of hinted at it and I feel like we probably have to get to this point. Um, was there anything about this movie besides the characterization and the, the structure of the plot that didn't necessarily work for you? <laughs> well, there are there are a couple of elements in the movie that have been discussed by other people, um, mm-hmm. especially other other people whose perspectives on those things I would trust more than my own as a 
white woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's been some discussion as to whether or not Idris Elba's Jin character is um, kind of magical Negro or magical Negro adjacent, or mm-hmm. if there's some kind of exoticization going on that is maybe not quite on the up and up. And it's, I'm not wildly offended by it. I didn't see anything that completely just made me want to leave the theater. Um, But I do think that that character is, it's, it's not a great position. It's not a great look, I will say. Um, Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's not maybe developed enough to the point where I feel like it is challenging those stereotypes in a way that I think it would like to, or that the Mm -hmm. movie thinks that it is doing. Um, I don't think we're quite there. I think that gets at the kind of underbaked nature of that third act, um, which Mm -hmm. I feel like is trying to undermine that, like you'd said. I just wish that we'd gotten a little bit more time in this particular character's head, not just in him telling his story to Alethea, but also in him just existing in the world. I think he's a fascinating character, and I think it would be really interesting to watch him wandering around after he's been trapped and freed from his bottle multiple times. And I think it would be interesting to hear him talk a little bit more about his own innermost heart's desire. He's so focused on Mm -hmm. granting other people their wishes that we don't really know what he as a character wants other than to be free. And we get a couple of hints of that in the dialogue, I think, but we don't really learn too much about how and why he goes about what he does or what it is that he actually really truly wants after after he's out of his his servanthood. And I don't know, like may- maybe that kind of gets at the same problem with Alethea. Like both of these characters feel like they're just a little bit underdone in kind of similar yeah. ways. And I, I think... A time when I think I did feel that is when Alethea makes her wish and the the two of them are together for the rest of the movie. They go back to her home in London in mm-hmm. um, that up to that point, the djinn has said that you have to make these three wishes in order to free me. All he wants is to be able to return to his own realm. And the wish that she makes is to keep him from doing that. Yes. <laughs> Which seems, A, really selfish, given the fact that he's just spent the last like entire day basically telling her how important it is that he be able to get home. Mm-hmm. And B, just... A, plays into a dichotomy like a relationship that I'm not sure is based on mutual affection mm-hmm. <laughs> um it's I think we're we're supposed to believe that it is but given the fact that it doesn't really feel that way and given the fact that the power dynamic is in the hands of the white person it doesn't really come off great yeah yeah and I think that that could be I don't know like I kind of I want to tread carefully a little bit here I think that that tension would be a lot more interesting if it had been explored and interrogated a little bit more. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's not at all. And so there's, there are a couple of other instances in this movie where there are tensions that exist and it feels like the movie either glides over them completely or just stops and says like, huh, maybe there's something interesting here and then leaves that stone unturned and goes on Mm -hmm. to the next shiny rock. And so there's that issue there. There's a little bit of of a flavor of Orientalism, I think, as well. Alethea is in Turkey um, at a conference, and a lot of the stories that the djinn is telling her are stories from his own background and from his own life. And I think that that is definitely good and something that should be explored. But it does feel like a lot of it is being used as sort of set dressing for his character's story and not so much Mm. as the explanation for who he is or why he is or how he thinks about the way that he does. It's really there to give you kind of a spectacle, but nothing much Mm -hmm. more than that. And then there was this other, uh, I don't know, there was this instance that really felt like it was kind of an example of exoticism in a really gross way where one of the characters in the Jin's backstory is a man who is interested only in fat women And I don't think that that is a problem like in and of itself, but the way that the movie presents it is that this man has fallen into indolence and sloth and isn't interested in the outside world. He's only interested in his own pleasure. And the movie kind of uses that image of fat people, especially fat women, as kind of a shorthand for for laziness and for self-indulgence in a way that really just did not sit right with me because it didn't feel like it was humanizing any of these characters at all. It felt like it was treating them as kind of just this 
oh, look at this person who's so strange and exotic because he has outre tastes. And that just, it it felt really, really gross. I don't know if you picked up on that at all, but. Yeah, it made me feel kind of uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> I think it is, what I will say is that I think it's a really dated perspective <laughs> that it's using. <laughs> I feel like it's it's not, it's something that I have seen in other films. Mm-hmm. It's something that I've seen in other films like this. The films that I have seen it in that are like this are at least a decade old. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like the conversation has really advanced past that to a point where I'm a little disappointed that the perspective didn't as well. Um, mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, I think it's most, mostly used as sort of a, a, a visual gag in a way that is not super great. One of those characters does get a little bit of development and is given um, some cleverness and intelligence that I appreciate, but it's pretty late in coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and that character is also the butt of a joke. So um, yeah. I don't I don't think it really recovers the way that I would have liked it to. Yeah, and, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And again, you're sorry. Again, you're you're talking about like kind of the lack of interrogation of certain things. And that is something that I think could stand to be interrogated and is not. Mm, yeah, which is such a shame because again, gorgeous movie, some really interesting lines in here, but it's it's just so surface level that I really wish that George Miller had done some interrogating so that we wouldn't have to do that interrogation for him. No, agreed. And it's it's a little bit disappointing coming from somebody who in Fury Road did such a great job of interrogating so many of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to see that not really executed in the same way here is is pretty disappointing. Yeah, it definitely is a a beautiful bummer, I think we can probably say. So listeners, um, if you have had the chance to see 3000 Years of Longing, it's out in wide release in theaters now. We would love to hear from you. You can tweet your feedback to us at Pod, or you can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go away. We're going to keep that conversation going in just a minute. So welcome to The Conversation, um, which is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation going from what we've been talking about on this podcast. Kevin and I really like to hear from folks about what they're thinking about movies, about what they're thinking about the movies that we've reviewed. And we really like to keep that conversation going, especially on Twitter, when every Sunday I will put out a question into the world that has something to do with the episode that we're going to be having that following week. So this past Sunday, I just asked the question, do you have any favorite movies about storytelling? Obviously, 3000 Years of Longing is definitely a movie that is a story about stories. And so I thought it would be interesting to hear from other folks what kind of stories they like, especially stories that are about storytelling. So Twitter user DK Culp answered back with Tim Burton's Big Fish, which I think kind of fits in George Miller's maximalist sort of mode of storytelling. Um, Abby, I'm assuming you've seen Big Fish, um, but how do you feel about that one? Yeah, that's I haven't watched Big Fish in a long time and I need to I need to come back to it. That's mm. a movie that I have some really fond memories of um, yeah. watching. I think it came out when I was in high school and I watched it a lot, watched it with my parents, with friends, um, really enjoyed the kind of magical realism elements of it. Um, it was for a long time a movie that I kept coming back to again and again. So I should I should revisit that one. It's one that I actually had the opportunity to rewatch it. I want to say a couple of months ago. And there are like... 3,000 years of longing, there are a few things that have not necessarily aged particularly Mm. well, Mm -hmm. but it's the kind of movie where I watch it and I think I'm not going to cry this time. I'm not going to cry this time. I'm not going to cry this time. And then I hit that last five or 10 minutes and I'm just sobbing the entire way through. Yeah. Yeah. The first time I watched it in a theater with my dad, I I was doing fine. And then I looked over and he was crying and then I started crying. So yeah, that's, it's a, yeah, it's a big, it's a big crier. Oh man. Yeah. This, this next one is one where, um, this movie actually scared me so badly that I stopped watching live action movies. I think it was my parents foray into trying to get us away from cartoons and into watching movies with actual people in them. So Ron Sturry answered with the princess bride, which feels like the OG movie, um, that is a, a story about stories, but oh, yeah. it scared me so badly the first time I saw it. And it, like the shrieking eels, the torture scene, like I still can't sit through that at this point. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, yeah, <laughs> I can see how that would be. Yeah, that I remember those kind of gave me the willies a bit as a kid when I watched it. But that's yeah, it it has some sticking power. Um, it, 
Yeah, I had a very tender heart as, as a small child, which I find deeply Aww. funny given uh, my proclivity towards horror movies at this point. But The Princess Bride still scares me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, I, I I love The Princess Bride, and I have like I have so many. As with, funnily enough, I think a lot of movies about storytelling. I have a lot of stories about showing these movies to other people. I taught English for a year in the Czech Republic, and uh, my students were high school students. And I found out about halfway through the year that as obsessed as the Czech people are with fairy tales, none of them had ever seen Princess Bride. That was a movie oh, that wow. just like skipped that country entirely because of, I, I guess, just political things. I don't know. <laughs> it didn't it didn't come out there. Um, and so I ended up spending like an entire... Um, lesson plan on on Princess Bride and comparing it to other fairy tales and um, just having a whale of a time with a bunch of high school kids who had never seen it before. Oh, that sounds delightful. It was um, great. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I can't imagine like watching that. So many people, I think, in the States have seen it that it feels weird to know somebody who hasn't seen it. Mm -hmm. So that has to be a delight to watch it with somebody who's who's never had the chance to see it before. Um, we have two other answers to this question. So John Barber answered back with Life of Pi. And then Joshua Wilson answered back with Mysteries of Lisbon, which is a miniseries that I had to look up. Um, sounds fascinating. It's the only movie on this list that I haven't had the chance to see. Um, but based on its description, it's one of those movies that just looks absolutely fascinating. It's a Portuguese period drama movie. I, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, Abby, but it's a, a period drama movie with a lot of coincidences and plot twists and a lot of different characters who are in disguise. And it just sounds like the kind of twisty story about stories that just sounds wonderful. Oh, yeah. I think I, I have seen clips and I think the trailer for that years and years ago. And I remember being really intrigued. So I can't wait to check that out. Excellent. I think it's really fascinating that every single one of these picks is a movie that is based on a book. Um, yeah, which is, I don't know if that says something about the way that movies based on books tell their stories, but it, I just thought it was an interesting, I don't know, fact about what everybody, sorry, I just thought it was an interesting thing about like what everybody picked here is that there's that commonality there, even though they're all very different stories. So, totally. um, Abby, I'm curious to know, do you have a favorite movie that is about storytelling? I think that I do. Um, I... For most of my impressionable child and young adult years was obsessed with uh, the movie The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, the Terry Gilliam film. Sweet. Um, which I, from from what I've read recently, was not a great set to be on. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't think there were, uh, I think there were a lot of breaches of ethics going on on that set, just mm. to put that out there. Um, but the, the reasons that I love that movie are um, very similar to the the reasons that I like the best parts of 3000 Years of Longing in that it's just like, it, it's maximalist. It's really beautiful. There's a lot of commitment to, um, to craft and um, artisanship and a lot of um, just things being made by hand and things mm. being really colorful and beautiful. And the idea of um, truth and what you would like to be true being separate things, but not necessarily mutually exclusive. Hmm. Um, and the way that that movie ends, um, which I, I wrote about in an article on uh, movies to watch for Easter for think Christian about a year and change ago um, is, is really triumphant in the way that it kind of considers the idea of um, legend and legacy surpassing your uh, surpassing your earthly being and kind of giving you a second life in a way that I really love. Well, you just sold me on this movie. I've actually never seen it. So I oh, it's great. <laughs> oh, it's excellent. a mess, but it's wonderful. <laughs> I love a wonderful mess. Um, I actually have a pick as well. And it's uh, Tarsum's The Fall, which mm. is also just one of those big, bright, colorful movies just about storytelling and about I, like you'd said, actually, about truth and what you want to be true and what is actually true. And I think in that case, the friction is more about what you want to be true and what is actually true, not really necessarily lining up in some interesting ways. Um, it's a great performance by Lee Pace, whom I love. And uh, I'm really glad to see him getting, you know, more and more work with things like Bodies, Bodies, Bodies and some of the other um, movies out there. Um, I just think it's a really beautiful movie about, you know, truth and um, what you want to be true and what is actually true. And 
I think the interesting friction about this one is that this movie, those two things don't ever actually line up and you have to learn to live with the things that are true and then the things that you would like to be true and knowing that you're not going to be able to attain one or the other. You, you can't pick both necessarily. So fascinating movie. Oh, yeah. And one that I wish was easier to find. It's it's tough to to get a handle on the fall, I think, in physical form or even digital form. I have a copy on iTunes, which is probably the most precarious place you can get it. <laughs> Need to track down a Blu-ray um, because if I can find one, that's probably going to be one of the one of the more prized movies in my Blu-ray library. Oh, yeah. So, Hashtag listeners, in distant physical media. Oh yeah, definitely got to keep that going. Um, listeners, if you have any picks for your favorite movie about storytelling, or if you just have any additional thoughts about this episode, definitely feel free to take to Twitter or to email. Again, that's. Twitter is cbeliefpod and email is seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go away. We're going to be talking about another movie, one that focuses a little less on storytelling and a little bit more on dreams and their interpretations. So coming up on the watch list is Peter Weir's 1977 movie, The Last Wave. Listeners, this is the watch list segment, the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not yet seen. We both watch it, and then we get together to talk about it. So Abby is guest hosting this week. So she did the honors and picked The Last Wave, directed by Peter Weir, who will sound familiar to listeners who heard our episode about Picnic at Hanging Rock. This is his follow-up, which came out in 1977. And it's about a corporate tax lawyer from Sydney named David Burton, played by Richard Chamberlain, who was called upon to defend five indigenous Australians in a murder trial. At the same time, unusual weather phenomena break out across Australia, thunder where there are no clouds, a hailstorm in the outback where one has never been recorded before, torrential downpours in Sydney in November, and oily rain. And through it all, David endures strange dreams which push his relationship with his family and his sanity to the edge, and which might have some connection with the men he has been called on to defend in court. So, Abby, I'm, I'm curious to know why this particular movie... Oh, man. Um, so there are a few reasons. Uh, when you mentioned that the main discussion was going to be 3000 years of longing, mm -hmm. um, as somebody who really loves Australian cinema, my my brain also goes to Peter Weir, who was one of my favorite other. My brain immediately goes to Peter Weir, who's one of my other favorite Australian directors. Um, and both George Miller and Peter Weir come out of this really interesting early um, historical nexus um for the australian film movement basically um so up to that point uh the movies that australia was known for tended to be really grindhousey um exploitationy um sometimes outright pornographic films mm. um and uh i think out of of out of a sense of embarrassment a little bit um the Australian government created the Australian Film Commission, which um, basically was just an arm of the government that provided grants to filmmakers to make movies. Um, and uh, George Miller making the first Mad Max movie is kind of at the tail end of the exploitation era in uh, Australian cinema. Mm -hmm. And Peter Weir, uh, his first film, uh, The Cars That Ate Paris, is a little bit of a crossover um, in... Uh, in the exploitation territory, but he's one of the earlier filmmakers to have been given government grants to make fancy art house films, uh, which starts <laughs> a picnic at hanging rock. Um, so there's an interesting crossover there. Um, 3000 years of longing and um, the last wave also share, interestingly enough, um, some, some crew, one particular crew member, uh, John seal, who is the cinematographer for 3000 years of longing was also a camera operator on the last wave and picnic oh, at hanging. Wow. Rock. And yeah, and then went on to do a lot of cinematography for both Peter Weir and George Miller. Um, so if you look at that guy's IMDb, it is just a laundry list of like every important Australian movie that came out from like the 70s onward. He's had a hand in in some way. Oh, I love that. I had never I did not know that connection. That's fantastic. Yeah, neither did I until I started writing uh, the uh, the review for 3000 Years of Longing and just was curious about the cinematographer and went, oh, wow, <laughs> he's worked on so much. And I think it, it's interesting. The last wave looks so beautiful and so stark in kind of a way that it feels a little bit grittier and grimier. It's definitely not exploitative, though. Um, 
it definitely it feels of a kind with Picnic at Hanging Rock in that there seems to be some of those like interesting sort of slow dissolves or some some long slow we're going to focus on somebody's face for a minute here maybe just a touch longer than you you typically would at least in a movie that comes out in contemporary cinema so that's that's a fascinating uh that's a fascinating connection with with the cinematographer there yeah yeah he also worked on fury road as well he was the cinematographer for that so that's you know the reason why three thousand years of longing and fury road look so similar i think is in in large part due to his his work there it's very great work and it's very distinctive Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so this this was a movie that i really liked just about from the get-go and i think a lot of it had to do with that mastery of the image on screen one of the things that i've loved about peter weir's movies in particular is that he seems to trust his audience to be able to understand what they're looking at and he doesn't feel the need to necessarily explain it to them especially when what he's trying to get across is this sense of mystery so instead of pointing his camera at something and saying, look at this mysterious thing. He's pointing his camera at something that looks fairly ordinary. And just the way that it's framed or the way that his characters t- seem to interact with each other feels like it fuels a sense of mystery without him putting too fine a point on it. I'm thinking about Picnic at Hanging Rock and the titular Hanging Rock in particular, because so much of it is just the camera aimed at this rock that looks like it might have these faces popping out of it. And I don't think he's doing anything particularly special or showy necessarily with the way that the camera is focused on it. But the way that the editing is put together, you get the sense of mystery and this idea that this rock has been there forever and will continue to be there forever after humankind have left um, the planet. And I got some of that similar sense from this, which felt particularly striking because so much of it is spent in Sydney instead of out in the wilds. And then in contemporary for that time, Australia in 1977. But a lot of the things that Picnic at Hanging Rock is grappling with and a lot of things that The Last Wave is grappling with feel kind of of a piece with each other. This movie really feels like it is trying to wrestle with Australia's history of colonialism even as its characters are saying like, that's all in the past behind us now. Like there's a moment where a barrister in court is making his opening argument to the jury. And he says, don't let history cloud your judgment. Don't let any of your sympathy towards the indigenous, indigenous Australians, like cloud what happened in this particular case. You have to come in with clear eyes and just the facts of this particular case. And I find that willingness to say we know what we did essentially with colonizing <laughs> this country and we're going to try to push it out of the way because it is inconvenient or uncomfortable to try to grapple with. And then this movie says, well, no, these things are inconvenient and that's why we need to think about them. And I just, mm-hmm. I love that it does that all without outright saying that that's what its thesis is. For sure. And that that particular moment is in really interesting conversation with another very small moment where uh, Richard Chamberlain's wife is looking at a book and it's like, um, the Aboriginal then and now, what we've done to them, essentially. And on the left, mm. there's a picture of a native Aboriginal, and he looks very strong and stoic and intelligent. And then on the right, there's a photo of a more contemporary, homeless and sad Aboriginal. And the the sense is, I think it's, it's really interesting in that it's infantilizing in two different ways. So mm-hmm. the one on the left is kind of a noble savage trope, and the one on the right is sad, homeless, helpless person trope. It's saying that we've gone from one to the other. Um, and that's it feels like a very a very white perspective that in this case, Peter Weir is absolutely interrogating and <laughs> yes. in that he gives he gives agency um, back to those characters in a way that isn't, I don't think, mysticism at all or exoticizing. It's um, weirdly a thought that I had toward the end of it. It's it's much more of a piece with the way that like the Cabrini Green residents are treated in Candyman. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> In that they uh, are knowledgeable about things. They know about things that the white characters don't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a situation where those white characters do need to know a little bit about it, they'll point them in the right direction, but they will not do the work for them. Mm-hmm. They will say, this is here. Don't mess with this. Bad things might happen. I'm going to go. And then they do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is a, it, it's, it's a thing I appreciate. Um and another thing that I think is present here that that is also at present in Picnic at Hanging Rock um, is that there's a way to read Picnic at Hanging Rock that is pretty staunchly anti-colonial um, mm-hmm. in the sense that uh, 
there's a lot of attempts to to tame things in Picnic mm-hmm. at Hanging Rock. You and, and Kevin mentioned um, like the taming of of women who don't want to be tamed necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's also a very strong sense of trying to tame the land and trying to be um, trying to create a civilization in this place that is just just feels very primal and uncivilized and maybe should be left that way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the the sense of the rock itself, which is like just this giant. I mean. I know we're we're a Christian audience here, but it's basically a volcanic ejaculation <laughs> um, that these young women are crawling all over. Hmm. And it's just just kind of constantly a sense of like, why are we here? We shouldn't be here. It doesn't make sense that we're here. Mm. And I think that that also applies very strongly to the last wave in that you're seeing these images of, of Sydney, of a, a, a city, like a real big proper city with all these buildings plopped in the middle of just so much <laughs> yeah. culturally spiritually geographically um and it just doesn't make sense that it's there it seems weird that you would put a city on top of all of these things um and it just becomes more and more so the case the more that we get to know um the parts of the city that these characters are operating in the more that we get to know um chris the david gopalil character who's sort of the main um the, the main client that Richard Chamberlain is working with mm-hmm. and Charlie, the older man who is also involved in the case. Um, and just the way that they have continued to keep certain traditions going in this urban setting where they, they don't feel totally congruous, but they don't feel like the odd ones out. The white people always feel like the odd ones out. Yes. Yeah. Which I appreciated. And, <laughs> yeah. Especially the character of David who, he's the movie's protagonist. He is the main character. We spend almost the entire time in his head and kind of like the city of Sydney, just being plopped down in a space where it doesn't belong. David feels like he's asserting himself in a space where he also doesn't belong. And it starts with him being dragged into that space. He's, he's a tax lawyer. He's not somebody who's used to defending people who have been accused of murder, much less dealing with indigenous tribal law. And yet he's been called upon to do that anyway. And the more he gets drawn into this case, the more he starts to feel like he is mystically involved with it in a certain way. Like those dreams that he has um, are dreams that he's been having ever since a child. And one of the things that I really love about this movie is that it leaves that sense of mystery and doesn't explain it and doesn't tell Mm. you exactly what is true. Like, is it David's perception And is he forcing himself into a situation where he doesn't belong at all? Or is he actually like a part of this legend that these people are participating in and are knowledgeable about that he has no knowledge of himself? Um, Or is it some other like third unknown thing? And I think the movie works regardless of the read that you bring to it, which feels deeply powerful to me. And it also doesn't feel like it's trying to map a like any one specific read or perspective onto itself it feels like it's trying to present multiple perspectives but the viewpoint of the movie is that this man shouldn't be here and neither should any of the other people that he's with Mm. and yet now that they are all here like what do we do with that situation and how do we come to grips with the fact that our ancestors oppressed the ancestors of these other people and can we even make it right? And so I'm, I'm curious to know if you think that it is possible at all to make that situation right, because the read that I have on it is that it's a knot that can't really be untangled. No, yeah, I agree. Um, so I don't, yeah, I, I don't want to spoil it too much, but... Um, oh, spoilers a, are allowed in this section. <laughs> spoilers are allowed. Yes. Spoiler for a movie made in 1977. Um, yes. So a large part of what's driving um, David Richard Chamberlain's character, his his visions are these just apocalyptic visions of flooding mm-hmm. and waves. And, um, and also there's this weather going on that is also just insane, like frogs coming down from the sky, oily mm-hmm. rain. Um, like you mentioned, hail where there shouldn't be hail. Um, there's a, a pretty gnarly hailstorm at the beginning of the movie that comes from a cloudless sky. Um, <laughs> And like children are injured. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the end of the film, like we get the titular last wave. Um, 
in in something that is like it may or may not really be happening. It's kind of hard to tell. And it's also kind of hard to tell whether the way that it's put in the film is just because they didn't have the budget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I mean they may not have, but the effect is such that you're not really sure whether or not what David is seeing is real. Um but it's definitely implied that whatever is coming is sort of a like a Noah's Ark situation where it's apocalyptic and it's going to just kind of wipe people off the face of the earth. Um, and the sense that I get toward the end of the movie is that maybe that's necessary. <laughs> maybe Peter Weir thinks that it's necessary to occasionally wipe the slate completely clean and start again. Um, that maybe there is no coming back from this. There is no... Um, way that you can really fully atone for the sin of colonialism. Um, there's no way that you can really completely fix the system so that it is equitable. Um, that knot really can't be untangled. And so what do you do with a Gordian knot? You cut it. Um, I think yeah. that's that's kind of the vibe that I get. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. You mentioned Noah's Ark. I was actually thinking of the plagues in Egypt. Mm. Um, you you get the raining frogs and and hail and... I think at one point there is some darkness as well, although that might just be the fact that the scene was set at night and maybe I was mapping a little bit too closely on top <laughs> of it. Um, but it does feel like biblically apocalyptic in nature and in scale. And what strikes me about it is that so many of the white characters are just kind of unaware of it. It feels like they're so separated from nature around them. They live inside their cars or inside their houses and then they go from place to place, sometimes being sort of rained on as they as they skip from car to house. But it's really from shelter to shelter. And they're sheltering themselves from this outside world that they've imposed their will upon. Um, whereas the indigenous characters in this movie don't really seem to feel that separation necessarily. Mm -hmm. And the scene that really struck me when I was thinking about that that contrast between these characters is... When David goes and visits um, Charlie, Charlie is seated on the floor in his apartment building. And David doesn't really know what to do with this because he's not entirely sure what would be like the most courteous thing to do. So he comes into the room and he sort of just crouches in front of Charlie and Charlie like insistently pats on the ground in front of him. Like, no, you are going to sit down and you are going to meet me on my level and on my terms. And David does it, and he is so deeply uncomfortable with the situation. And you can just read that all in his body language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned the the white characters disconnect from um, from the natural world because that that is something, at least in my mind, that is not unique to this movie or even unique to Australia to to Peter Weir as a director. Like it's it's throughout a lot of Australian movies. You have this. <laughs> there's Long Weekend, in which a, a arguing couple takes a really ill fated trip to the beach um and uh there's a lot of, a lot of that has to do with kind of the uncomfortability of being in a place where you don't feel okay um there's also parts of um there's also parts of george miller's original mad max that i think speak to that as well um mm. in terms of people always being in their cars um and how that is a destructive to the environment and b destructive to the society in which they live um it's yeah, I think there there are just a lot of of uh, of movies that come from this part of the world that seem to be really um, in concert with that conversation, just kind of constantly, which is something I find really interesting. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like a lot of the online jokey conversation about Australia is that it's a continent that is constantly trying to kill you because of all of the snakes <laughs> and spiders and everything. Yeah, exactly. But the more that I think about it, that feels like a deeply white perspective about the continent of Australia. So, yeah. I yeah, th I think no, I think I, I think you're right. And I, I think it's also worth noting that all of these movies that I'm talking about and the proposition, I think, is another one as well. Um, all of these movies come from white filmmakers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this is something that I don't know, white filmmakers from Australia are definitely thinking about. It might not be something that uh, Aboriginal filmmakers from Australia are really thinking about, which um, is something worth considering and i know there are movies uh out there like 10 canoes which is one that i watched a long long time ago and need to kind of watch again that uh are more fully aboriginal centric and more um kind of collaboratively told with uh aboriginal artists mm -hmm. that might have a slightly different um a slightly different sense of the land and the people and um that that relationship 
Mm, makes sense. Yeah. I do appreciate, though, that Peter Weir is willing to let the indigenous people speak for themselves and he isn't trying to impose, I think, his own worldview on them, or at least that's the read that I got from this particular movie, not being someone mm-hmm. who lives in 1977 Australia necessarily. Um, and I think some of them are, are definitely the the best performances in the film. Uh, David Golpillo. Golpillo? Sorry, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. Yeah. So David Golpillo in, in particular um, just as a performer, I thought was, was deeply fascinating. So much of what he's doing is standing there and not speaking. He appears in quite a few dream sequences and as he's doing it, he's still asserting himself. And you can tell that this is another character that David is encountering in a way that feels magical or mystical, but not in a way that demeans the character of Chris in, in any way. Um, it really does feel to me like this is two people who are meeting who may not necessarily understand the way in which they are meeting, but they're, they're very distinctly two human beings who are having a connection there. Um, or at least that's the read that I had of it while I was watching. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, they are both distinctly on their own journeys. Those journeys happen to overlap. Mm. Um, I think David maybe senses there's some kind of connection there that Chris may not be fully happy about <laughs> um, <laughs> in a way that he kind of makes clearer toward the end of the film um, mm-hmm. in a way that it, it kind of it kind of reframes that story in that we've been spending all this time with David. But um, the story is maybe not necessarily just about him mm-hmm. um, in a way that he kind of has to be reminded of um, yeah. by 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 Chris and by a couple of other people as well but to have that to have that connection be there and then to have it kind of understood better by one person than the other person and the person who understands it better doesn't necessarily want to have to explain everything to you know the new white guy who just showed up and thinks that this is his now mm-hmm. yeah yeah it makes me want to rewatch the movie I think partly for that dynamic and partly because I I now know what's coming at the end mm-hmm. and it feels inevitable when it happens and yet it's also still so surprising but I also want to rewatch it just because the strength of the imagery is is just so powerful like we've mentioned the frogs and the hail and the I'm thinking in particular of the shot where you see the hail injure a, a child. And yeah, it's very quick. The editing is extremely good because you just see this kid looking out a window at the hail and then you hear broken glass and the, the camera cuts lightning fast to just a flash of red. And that's basically it. But it felt very visceral. And so mm-hmm. much of the rest of the imagery kind of follows that very visceral, very connected to the earth and to the physical world kind of way. You get a lot of very dirty walls in the legal aid office, and then the walls in court are blood red, um, as is the Bible that everyone is made to swear on, whether or not they actually Mm -hmm. believe in it necessarily. But the image I keep coming back to, and I think the image that's going to stick with me for a really long time, is this shot right near the end after David and Chris have gone into the sewers to find this, this secret, sacred place. And David is standing in shadow and he's holding a flashlight in his hand and he's looking down at a mask and his face is completely obscured. You can just sort of see the outline and you can see the light shining off this mask, almost white, like it's a reflection of him. And yet it's a reflection that he's imposing on it because this mask doesn't belong to him. It belongs to Chris and to Chris's people instead. And that image just felt so deeply powerful that I, I think I'm just going to be meditating on it for a little while. Oh, yeah. There's there's a lot. There's a lot to be meditated on in this movie. Um, this is so fun. Fun story about this and Picnic at Hanging Rock. These are movies that I uh, speaking of storytelling. These are movies that I knew the story of and I knew the plot of long before I saw them because my mm-hmm. parents watched them um, back when they were like. Married, but had not yet had me and had lots of time to go out to movies. Um, (laughs) And so these were two movies that they saw when they were uh, living in Portland, Oregon, um, and just stuck with them for so long that they would come up again and again and again in like friend conversations, family Mm -hmm. conversations, um, to where they just kind of lived in my brain, almost like an urban legend (laughs) until the point where I was old enough to watch them myself. Mm. and it's I think it's it's kind of it's it's kind of put Peter Weir as a filmmaker in sort of like a legendary echelon in my brain and just mm-hmm. like this person who has this really unique 
perspective and really unique eye um, on the stories that he tells and the ways that he wants to tell them. Um, and in ways where he doesn't feel that it's necessary for him to fully explain himself, <laughs> which is kind of a rarity in modern filmmaking. Um, and it just leaves that door open for a lot of interpretation and consideration in, I think, kind of deeply spiritual ways. Um, I think there's a reason that that movies like this and um, also his later movies like The Truman Show and Mosquito Coast come up a lot in conversations about um, colonialism and masculinity and spirituality and how some of all of those things are like tied together in unhealthy ways. Um, it's mm -hmm. just, yeah, this is, this is a movie that's kind of lived in my brain for a long time and will continue to for a long time after. I think it's going to continue living for a very long time for me after as well. So I'm, I'm hoping that it sticks there for a really long time and that's going to do it for us. Many thanks to Abby Alchesi for joining me in the virtual podcasting booth. Listeners can find her on Twitter at Abby Alchesi. Kevin will be back next week when we're going to be talking about a story near and dear to both our hearts, The Lord of the Rings. We're going to be reviewing the new Amazon TV series, The Rings of Power. For the watch list, I've picked another TV series, Over the Garden Wall, which is an animated miniseries. Uh, you can find it streaming on HBO at the moment. And the total runtime is just about two hours, so it's really no longer than the average watch list pick anyway. So if you're like me and you're ready for fall and maybe a slightly spooky story, you might just want to watch along with this one. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Claussen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Sarah Welch-Larsen. I was joined this week by Abby Olchesi, and we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.